You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is David Ollinger. Uh, David, could you introduce yourself? My name is David Ottlinger. Um, I have studied more philosophy than is good for a person. I write at the Electric Agora, and I have been seen here talking about various topics. Yeah, uh, we, we had a previous conversation on Meaning of Life TV about um, postmodernism and Trump, which people can check out, and I was actually just thinking about that yesterday because someone we talked about just uh, died, Robert Venturi, the architect, just passed away yesterday. And he was a key mm-hmm. uh, key figure in postmodernism in architecture, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, we're having a conversation today that was actually prompted by a tweet that I made within the last month or so, and it's kind of this conversation is kind of going to be like a meta blogging heads episode because we're going to be talking about like debate and discourse and the way it's happening <laughs> across America, but also online. And uh, the tweet was actually kind of inspired by um, one of my uh, tasks as an employee at Blogging Heads and Meaning of Life TV is I kind of monitor the comments, and that includes YouTube comments because our videos are now on YouTube. So oh. there's a lot of people who are, find uh, Blogging Heads and Meaning of Life content uh, who aren't necessarily familiar with the site, and so we're getting, you know, new new uh, viewers and fans and followers, and so that's a good thing. But, you know, some I, of the people I, who comment on YouTube are also uh, some of the worst people in the world. <laughs> so I didn't realize range. that you – I didn't realize you had to do both, you poor men. <laughs> yeah. yeah. YouTube so comments are usually unusable. It's just a snake pit. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, if you are watching this video on YouTube, comment below and tell us what you think of YouTube comments. <laughs> But usually, you know, re- really, I'm I'm just uh, trying to delete ones that have like uh, racial slurs and uh, you know, or just are very vile or, or something like that. So it's a pretty open <laughs> uh, realm of discussion down there. And uh, you know, I I uh, our most popular show on Blogging Heads is um, Glenn Lowry's show, The Glenn Show, and he's been with uh, you know Blogging Heads for like a decade or more. Um, and he's assembled a lot of fans, and I think he's gotten new fans of um, who find his content because it's suggested to them through the YouTube algorithm after they're watching videos by uh, Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris or Joe Rogan. Um, he's you know Glenn is not at the, their level of fame, but he is some way oper- operating on the same wavelength. So those type of people are kind of migrating over and saying. You know, telling Glenn, like, oh, Glenn, you should join we join the Intellectual Dark Web, or Glenn, you should go on Joe Rogan's show, um, which is all, you know, all well and good. Um, and, I, you know, I, I started seeing comments that were kind of like, uh, I don't know, it, it, they just made me think that the way we're looking, like, there's this new sort of person out there who is consuming, like, intellectual or political debate in the way that one could consume um, a sporting match or a game of tennis. And they're kind of admirers of the form of uh, online debate. And they have their, they've kind of invented some terms like um, steel manning, which I never heard of before, but is like the, the opposite of straw, straw manning. So, you know, setting up a straw man argument and then steel manning is like uh, describing your opponent's argument in strongest terms possible before you, you give the counter arguments. This is like a neologism. And, yeah, and there's just people who are 
kind of really into it just for it for the debate's sake. Like I said, like, you know, watching a tennis match and you just really mm-hmm. admire the form of, of the players. Um, and I thought this is kind of strange. And even though I've worked for blogging heads with a brief interruption for um, more than 10 years now and have listened to, you know, thousands of hours of people debating politics and current events and religion and philosophy and stuff, uh, I, I still thought this was kind of weird that there's just people out there who want to consume debate as debate and don't seem to seem to like the, the, the content of the debate or its political implications seems to be uh, secondary. So obviously like a lot of the intellectual dark web people have an ideology and it's usually a lot of these people were kind of like once liberals, but got dis- you know, became disaffected with, uh, there, you know, people on their own side who are going to extremes or something like that. So they're now critics of liberalism. Um, so that's an increasingly popular ideology. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's people out there who will pay $50 to attend a live debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris on the topic of like, does God exist or, you know, is religion good or bad or something? And I'd pay, I'd pay $50 to get out of there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and it's like, I don't, are they gonna, are people gonna like learn something new from this that they w- hadn't heard before? Like, we know that Sam Harris, uh, thinks religion is bad, and Jordan Peterson, well, I, I kind of maintain it's kind of hard to pin Jordan Peterson down on any, anything at all, but he is like, at least, uh, thinks religion serves some useful purposes in, in life. Um, but yeah, and then there's people who are treating these particular figures like, um, you know, celebrities and rock stars, and there was a, recent essay by a writer named Megan Down that was called Nuance a Love Story that was about how she got really um, into watching these debates online. Um, it was actually her entry point to them was the Glenn Show on Blogging Is and Glenn's conversations with John McWhorter. And then she started viewing the videos by Brett, Brett Weinstein and Rogan and, and Peterson. And uh, I think at one point she says, like, you know, Brett Weinstein was, you know, if I met him in person, it would be like meeting uh, Bruce Springsteen in person. Or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so, yeah, so this is all, like, new and weird. Uh, I don't, you know, I feel s- slightly weird, like, kind of criticizing people who just enjoy this stuff because they're probably watching Blogging Heads TV videos, and if no one was watching any Blogging Heads TV videos, I wouldn't have a job. Uh, so I don't quite know what to make of all this stuff. Uh, and uh, you said you'd be interested in discussing it with me, so, so yeah. Well, they well, like- what do you think? They apparently like being challenged, these people, so we'll try to challenge them even on this. Um, you know, if I have one message for Glenn Lowry when the, uh, not that he would listen to me, but if he did, uh, when the dark web comes knocking, it'd be, run, <laughs> run, Glenn. Please don't fall in with these people. But yes, no, I, I, I've noticed these same trends that you have, and I've, I think I've, from your guests and stuff, I think we kind of look at the same group of people are aware of the same sort of internet trends and the way things have been evolving. And I, I think it's very interesting within my lifetime, the way the media has kind of evolved in ways that I think both, uh, reflect changing notions of what intellectualism is and that also 
cause changing notions of what intellectualism is. It's both a kind of um, product of and causal factor in 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 these kinds of um, well, what would you call it? Sort of changing ideas of uh, discourse. Um, and particularly interesting to me is in our lifetime, we've seen a lot of change in the sort of lines which used to exist between news and entertainment and the way both are presented. Um, my perception is that both when I was much younger and especially in the sort of Walter Cronkite generation, the lines were much, much clearer. Um, that they're really, you know, Walter Cronkite and Murrow and Huntley and Brinkley and these guys were did very little to entertain people. And that, you know, entertainment did relatively little to educate people. Um, and that's really become more and more blurred now to where, you know, with things like last week tonight, it's hard to tell the difference between news and entertainment mm -hmm. where you have a show that's ostensibly entertainment, I suppose, um, which has on the one hand, a staff of comedians and on the other hand, a staff of journalists and is presenting these long segments, which can only be described as journalism, mm -hmm. um, which have jokes interspersed to them, but also um, present a lot of fine grain detailed in just presenting the facts of the case and are clearly holding themselves accountable to getting the facts right and to getting the context right and basically are holding them accountable holding themselves accountable to all the usual norms and standards of journalism. Um, and I was particularly struck. There was a, there was a, a daily show reunion. I don't know if you saw it. Mm -mm. It was on Colbert's show. Where you just had a lot of the most famous daily show regulars on with, um, you know, Samantha B and, her husband and um, the big marine guy who always yells at people. Yes. To get his name. Yeah, I forget um, his name too, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. All, you know, a lot of them are recognizable people. And one of them was saying, and I'll find the segment, we can link to it, is that when the Daily Show started, um, they would talk to reporters, actual straight reporters, and they would say, oh, we wish you could, we could do what you guys do. And they would, and they would say, well, why can't you? And they'd say, well, you know, it's the news. We can't do that. And then they said, but you know, now they're kind of doing that stuff. Um, you know, it, it's the daily show and other things have changed things such that now reporters are behaving differently as a result they're they've reacted to the to what the daily show and other things have um 
have brought into the fold. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a lot of the story is this, this changing media environment and how entertainments become more news and, um, news has become more entertainment. Um, so, I mean, and I think the daily show is really where you, you have to start. It's kind of cliche now, um, to talk about how the daily show changed everything. Um, I feel like, uh, tons of discussions like this about media end up starting with the daily show, but it is appropriate and I think more or less inevitable. It was really felt kind of different at the time and it held a lot of eyeballs and it, um, got a lot of attention by really having a clear political mission. In fact, I remember the show. It, it would be hard for anyone to remember, but there was a period early on when the show was actually interested in being funny. Um, <laughs> well, it, the, I mean, the daily show is, yeah, it's fascinating. People are, yeah, you're right. It's been much analyzed. Um, you know, I, uh, weirdly, remember very, very well the um, very first episode of The Daily Show, which aired in 1996, because uh, I used to watch Comedy Central a lot. I would have been 13 then. And they were, like, pumping it up and advertising it for months before it came on. And then it started. Craig Kilborn was the host. And mm -hmm. um, randomly, they they mentioned... They were, it was during the, uh, the 1996 Summer Olympics in, in Atlanta. They mentioned someone who um, was a family friend of mine who was competing in the Olympics who got knocked out in the first round. They, they like mentioned his name as like a punchline of like, no one pays attention to, you know, the regular losers who get knocked out. Um, so I, I always remember that really well. And then, um, that, that show, the version of that show with Craig Kilborn like lasted two or three years. He had some kind of scandal where he uh, insulted, uh, the women who created the show and said they would, they, you know, they gave him oral sex or something and then he got suspended and then he came back. But originally it was like a more like a parodying, like, uh, a current affair or, or hard copy or something like they, and, and again, and the correspondents would go out and find like weird people who believed in aliens or mm -hmm. there was some sort of strange like law in a little town in Missouri right. and they would go and interview the mayor and he would come off looking like a moron and that was it originally. And yeah, it was, it was like funny, but I don't, no one thought it was revolutionary. And then Stewart replaced Kilborn, uh, you know, in 98 or 99. And he brought like a much more serious sensibility to what they were doing and actually talking about, um, you know, joking about the news in a way that was more, uh, incisive and hadn't quite been done before. You know, it wasn't like just the, looking for a punchline type of thing that uh, the late night hosts or Saturday Night Live's weekend update would do. Um, so, yeah. So it's, it's not only the show, it's Stewart as like the, you know, key hinge point. And then after he left the show, like no one really cares about the daily show anymore at all, but all, you know, there's like five shows that have sprung off, like sprung off of the daily show and they all have different variations. Um, but yeah, I agree that it's an important point. I just, one, one other thing, uh, that I thought of when you mentioned last week tonight is there's an essay from, I think in 2015, um, right around when last week tonight started, which is the John Oliver show on HBO. Um, 
and it's on the all, uh, AWL, the now defunct website. I think it was by, uh, John Harriman, but I probably have that wrong, but it was this analysis of all the different, uh, big news websites, uh, Monday morning aggregation of John Oliver's monologue from the night before. And it was called something like the last week tonight sweepstakes or something. And it was this kind of tongue in cheek, like serious analysis of which website got the most hits based on their, you know, headline and paragraph and embedded clip of John Oliver and which ones did like a, a lousy job. And, you know, there was at least like 20 major websites that were created a, a post just to aggregate uh, the John Oliver clip. And it was one of the most, and they were all doing it because it was a huge traffic getter. Um, you know, this mm-hmm. post would get like 50,000 clicks for basically no work at all on the part of whoever mm-hmm. wrote it. So, and this is sites like Vox, Slate, The Atlantic, etc. that do like actual serious reporting. Um, so yeah, the feedback between comedy, comedy slash, uh, news, and then ostensible news on slate.com, uh, the Atlantic, et cetera, is just like totally mashed up because, uh, you know, the news sites have figured out that people want entertainment <laughs> along with, along with their news. And that's what they click on. So that's what they're, that's what the news sites are going to give them. No, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that kind of direct a mashup when they just directly link to something like the daily show or, Last week tonight. Yeah, and it had to be something like John Oliver demolishes, you know, the pesticide industry or whatever, and then you have twenty variations on that same headline, and whoever has the best one then gets like the best SEO bump, and they get the extra clicks. Right now, I do want to contest your history slightly, and that you you located the the change in tone to when Stewart took over the Daily Show. Um, I, too, am going by memory, uh, but I remember it being different for the first few years. I think, I mean, Stuart was a more serious kind of guy, so I'm sure he brought a more serious sensibility, as you put it. But they did those goofy stories. I remember one story about, like, somewhere down, some town in Texas was arguing over um, bullfrogs and they were making laws about how to, you know, accommodate the bullfrogs. And, you know, it was that sort of local color, go down, talk, talk to dumb people, um, do pretend compassionate interviews, which were really designed to make them look stupid. Remember Samantha B held like a plush pillow of Texas and was like, show me on the doll where. (laughs) Yeah. So it it was, was it was like a parody. Yeah, more and 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 Kilborn had been a a sports anchor on ESPN, so he could play the role of the like sports, like the anchor who had like smarm, but also you know he's like this tall, good-looking guy and has good hair, and you know he can kind of play it serious when he has to. So yeah, there was there was a satiric element in there as well. Sure, but I think the the thing that really changed everything was the invasion of Iraq. And from then on, uh, I mean, you could see it just changed Stuart personally. And from then on, he was really about 
trying to use the show to change the world, to change hearts and minds, to to really kind of impact public opinion. And occasionally jokes were thrown in, but I think it really became about Clapter from that point on. Um, and, I mean, he occasionally did these bus tours and sort of extracurricular things, which were just clearly, I mean, explicitly about trying to change people's minds and trying to create dialogue. Um, and so that was really different. You had something that was uh, started as a piece of entertainment, ostensibly still was a piece of entertainment, but was still basically functioning uh, with a political goal. Uh, and that really determined what was on it and the, the style uh, and that really changed everything. And as you said, it spawned all these different imitations, um, which also had clear political goals. Um, and in fact, sort of one of the major things that allowed you to discriminate between them was the different worldviews of the different hosts uh, that, you know, Larry Wilmore had a point of view and, Colbert was a Roman Catholic and he had a different point of view. Um, and, and then last week tonight really to me solidifies this kind of pattern where, uh, what they're doing is clearly journalism and, um, occasionally, uh, Oliver will trot out as a defense, this kind of, I'm just a comedian line which is now so palpably absurd when he's uh, employing journalisms and is clearly um, playing by all the sort of binding himself to all the sort of ordinary rules of journalism that he's clearly making an attempt to get, to get things right um, and to uh, present all the relevant facts, etc. Um, so we're really what what the Daily Show began, we're now sort of really far into. Um, yeah, and it's it's an interesting, confusing phenomenon. Um, so do you do you think that the reason people are now, um, you know, uh, spending a lot of time watching a Joe, Joe Rogan who? used to be on Comedy Central as well on The Man Show, and right. uh, then he went to Fear Factor. So I think he was originally just like a stand-up comedian, um, and now he has one of the most popular podcast YouTube channels uh, in the world, um, and he interviews uh, mixed martial arts people, but also, like, you know, serious, <laughs> serious types, and uh, interviewed Elon Musk uh, just a couple weeks ago in an interview that made a lot of... Uh, news because Musk um, smoked a blunt on camera, and I think this rattled his investors uh, somewhat. So, so Rogan is you know a newsmaker now as well in the way that um, Oliver is. Uh, yeah, is it, do you trace that to this blurring of news, entertainment, comedy that the Daily Show comes from, or is this like an older impulse uh, in our society? No, absolutely. I think I, I, this is a very important factor. And you can see that the straight news has become more comedic. 
Uh, and I, when I say the straight news, I mean the straight news, like uh, Jake Tapper's show. Um, you know, Jake Tapper starts pretty much starts his show every day with a joke. Um, like I, I remember very distinctly uh, after Trump's Saudi trip, where this is the famous incident with the glowing orbs. Oh yeah, the orb, that, yeah. He went to Saudi Arabia and was treated to this all this pageantry and um, sort of opulent greeting. Um, and uh, some people suggested if we destroyed the glowing orb, his presidency would be over. Um, but anyway, there's this weird spectacle. And um, Tapper started his... Um, and I couldn't find the clip, unfortunately. But Tapper started his broadcast saying, you know, uh, Trump does this and that and the other thing in Saudi Arabia. I guess when in Riyadh, and I remember thinking, like, you know, I'm not a historian of mid-century television. I'm not Julian Zelitzer or one of these people, but um, it's pretty damn hard to imagine Edward R. Murrow saying that. No, that's like a Johnny Carson joke about in the equivalent level of funniness <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a brilliant joke, but it's the the fact that in his opening to his hard news show, he felt comfortable sprinkling in some jokes, I think shows the way that people have um, changed the way they think about the news. And he also ends his broadcast with the state of the cartoonian where he draws a little cartoon huh. about whatever the week's events are. And I know people will say, like, look, there's always been the, the kicker, the, the human interest story, the news has always had some little joke. And that's true, it always has. But those jokes haven't usually been the news. It's, it's usually, you know, and traditionally a human interest or... A kicker. It's a funny story about, you know, some woman in a town and she did this funny thing. It's not usually, you know, Jake Tapper writing, a, drawing a caricature of the president and making jokes about the political events of the week. That's something new. Um, and it also, I mean, reflected in that is that this idea that The um, that the reporters are supposed to be these sort of dispassionate uh, people who totally hide their own political opinions and try to be totally objective and and neutral all the time. That's just clearly gone. Yeah, that's totally dead. I would think social media, especially Twitter, killed that. Uh, yeah, but I mean, television too. I mean, it's just changed. So much. Um, and part of me, and this is a kind of parenthetical, but part of me thinks that those old kind of Walter Cronkite generation ideas were somewhat naive. Um, but I think now we're, if anything, too cynical, too far to the other side. We're so skeptical of any kind of idea of neutrality or uh, dispassionate objectivity 
that we cynically sort of see everyone as biased and everyone is engaged um, in ways that really aren't helpful. But sort of coming back to our main thought here, um, entertainment's become more news and news has become more entertainment. And you're right now that there seems to be this class of people who are in between who uh, it's almost impossible to identify whether we would call them uh, intellectuals or entertainers or both. Um, Joe Rogan is, uh, I don't know whether to call him the apex or the nadir of, <laughs> of uh, this phenomenon, probably more the latter. Um, for, for, uh, for Joe Rogan fans, that means top and bottom. They're going to come after you um, in the YouTube comments, I guarantee I don't it. care. <laughs> but, I mean, Joe, uh, but not just Joe Rogan, but also this intellectual dark web phenomenon. And a lot of the YouTubers, you know, from YouTubers from across the political spectrum, too. You've had uh, ContraPoints on. She's one person who's uh, more left side. But if you look at ContraPoints or Thunderfoot, uh, they're, they're opposite sides of every issue. But they're providing the same kind of format, which is sort of jokey, entertaining, highly produced things, but also something with, you know, a lot of fact and argument that uh, are clearly designed to at least make their viewers feel they're engaging with something sort of intellectually substantive or um, feel they're learning something that they didn't know before or that they're smarter for having engaged with, etc. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it feels wrong, doesn't it, to call Thunderfoot or Joe Rogan an intellectual? <laughs> I'm actually not familiar but, with Thunderfoot, perhaps to my detriment um, or perhaps not. No, not to your detriment. But, um, but I'm familiar with ContraPoints. I interviewed ContraPoints on Blogging Heads about a year ago. Uh, she's only grown in popularity since then. She, mm-hmm. She's a very interesting uh, person. And like one of the things I remember from our interview is that she said, um, well, she's a, uh, for people who don't know, she's a YouTuber. Um, she's transgender. She dropped out of a um, PhD uh, philosophy program. Uh, became, because uh, she became disenchanted with it, and she started making you know YouTube videos about various issues uh, for fun, and they became really really popular. Um, so yeah, she said that she thought of herself primarily as a performer, and that's what. She, and she started kind of doing these because she liked performing in front of the camera and like dressing up in different costumes and playing different characters. Uh, so that's that's like her shtick is that she has like a. You know, she, it's always just her on screen, but she's portraying like a variety of different characters. Um, so yeah, so that's, it's, uh, that's definitely more on the entertainment side of things, but she's doing, you know, she, she knows philosophy and she's doing things on, ser- on important issues like, uh, you know, a lot of trans issues, free speech issues, uh, etc. Um, actually, I should mention her latest video is actually kind of about this issue. Um, so it's about kind of, She's actually more self-aware about this and um, the necessity of rhetoric and also the the pitfalls of rhetoric and um, you sort of need to deal in illusion in order to be able to practice politics, but the dangers of dealing in illusion and losing track of reality and um, 
her latest video is called the aesthetic. Yeah, I actually watched that. The, yeah, I watched oh, that last you? night. It is interesting. Um, yeah, I wonder if she like uh, where she's going to go with this, and she has a Patreon that's uh, supporting her professionally. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing like she'd be offered a book contract or something fairly soon, and whether she would want to do something, and what that you know, whether she would want to make it like a jokey pink book or something, or make it more, like a more serious thing right. uh, or not. Um, you know, so just getting back to the you know, the line between news and entertainment, uh, you know, Twitter really encourages, Twitter has revealed that a lot of people who went into journalism feel like they missed their calling by not going to stand up comedy. Um, Mm -hmm. there are are some people who are journalists who are funny on Twitter. There's other people who are journalists who kind of make things that look like jokes on Twitter, but aren't exactly jokes. Um, you know, Dave Weigel is a very serious reporter and a good reporter who was a funny person as well and makes, you know, I spent like a decade making jokes on Twitter and has like a, so it has like a series of running jokes that his fans know and say back to him. So he, but, but he publishes completely straight stuff, uh, in the Washington Post where he goes and, you know, talks to people around the country about who they're voting for and interviews candidates and stuff like that. So he's a divided figure and something, the role he plays, you know, couldn't exist, uh, without the internet and, and, and social media. Um, or, or like, uh, Ken Popat White is like, uh, he's a lawyer and he does legal commentary, very serious stuff, but damn, is he funny. Yeah, and he's, he now has a, sh- a show on, I think, NPR with Josh Barrow, a street reporter, um, for, who actually, I think, just, just joined New York Magazine, but, and has been a blog, he has a couple times, um, and I think, yeah, he's called Popat because he originally just created his account anonymously on Twitter as a joke and <laughs> chose the name Popat and uh, is clever and knows a lot about the law. So he attracted followers that way. And there's other, you know, there's other people who kind of have gone this route in in some way of having a, uh, an out, you know, being outsiders and um, using social media to move towards uh, like the respectable, uh, the respectable center of of media and politics. Um, but something I, I wanted to bring up is whether the question is, uh, is, is this new or what is old is new again? Um, mm. You know, when I was thinking about this question about debates as entertainment, um, I thought about the Lincoln Douglas debates and they uh, toured the state of Illinois and had these public debates and uh, you know, huge crowds of people would come to listen to them uh, where all these people very interested in the issue of slavery, probably not every single one of them, probably, you know, there were children there and there were women who couldn't vote. Um, and they were attending because uh, there wasn't a lot to do in the 1850s. And so they would come out to the town square and it was like a community event. And, uh, there would be, you know, this, uh, there would be this debate and, but it was also like an enjoyable time. (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't, I, I, I feel like back then it wasn't like, you know, if you if you watch your 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 like uh, senatorial debate in your state on like local television, like you probably feel like you're doing your civic duty by by watching it because it's not going to be really interesting in any way. But um, this you know oratory was different in that era, and how people understood um, what was entertaining was different. And there used to be people who would you know tour the country giving two hour speeches on different topics, and uh, somewhat famously, the guy. Uh, there were two speeches, um, that were delivered at, when Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address, 
And one of them was this guy who I think was the president of Harvard, and he delivered like a two-hour speech that no one remembers at all, and it was just the way people talked back then. And yeah, and the famous the famous thing was nobody knew, knew when to applaud after uh, the Gettysburg Address because they just heard this long speech, and then, you know, uh, Lincoln walked up, and you can say the Gettysburg Address in five minutes, yeah. and then he sat down, and nobody <laughs> knew. Like, oh, is he done? Yeah, exactly. So Lincoln did something totally revolutionary there, whereas people were accustomed to uh, sitting there and listening to, like, uh, a man uh, deliver a two-hour speech in a blustery fashion, and that was kind of the entertainment of the day. And, uh, you know, I also thought about the, um, you know, the turn of the century uh, yellow press, which was, as everyone mm-hmm. learns in high school history, was sensationalized, and they would just print things that wasn't true, and there was, like, eight papers in a big city, and they are all competing with each other and had multiple editions. And the reason that it's called the Yellow Press is because uh, there was a cartoon character named the Yellow Kid who uh, appeared in, I think, the Hearst paper in New York, the whatever it was, the Tribune or something. And uh, and that became the thing that, that stuck was this, you know, comic strip character that uh, that appeared. Uh, so comic strips were kind of an innovation at that time, but... Uh, you know, so there were people who were buying the paper not just for the news; they were buying it for the cartoon strips as well. And mm-hmm. those were not uh, sober edifying things; they were probably just uh, silliness. So it's not like there was, you know, there was Murrow and Cronkite, and they were sober, serious people after World War II. But there's other points in history where uh, the media landscape was very different and was rollicking and filled with garbage and. Uh, you know, I feel like that's kind of the era we're in now. Like, why does Trump watch Fox News for hours and hours every day? Like, it's not because he wants to get the information. Like, he has, like, thousands of people who he's ostensibly the boss of who could deliver to him exactly what is happening in the world to the best of their knowledge. No, he wants to be entertained because he's a moron. So he sits there mm-hmm. and watches Fox News, and it's fun for him, and Sean Hannity yells, and Janine Pirro yells, and the people on Fox and Friends, you know, the woman sits there with her legs glistening in the center and the two doofuses who sit next to her like pipe pipe off now and then and they give their slanted version of the news and then it's like onto the commercial break so uh, i i feel like this is the, we can't just say this is like the daily show changed it you know the internet changed it it's it's also like these are other ways that media and information has have been conveyed in this country and Perhaps we're just returning to that era. Uh, yes, I think there's some truth in that. It's important to remember that not everything in the past was staid and formal and, um, you know, some hoary old black and white picture or lithograph of, you know, that we sometimes get in school. Uh, and you're talking about the 19th century um presidential candidates were expected to sort of go around and put on big parties and supply drink. And mm-hmm. um, a few people tried not to do that and lost. Um, so yeah, there was a more raucous environment, but I mean, you brought up the Lincoln Douglas debate. Um, maybe people went to that in a spirit of receiving entertainment. Well, maybe they did. Um, but you know, we know what was said there, um, which was several long hours of 
talking in a fairly formal and morally high-flown way, often sort of rhetorically elevated and sort of eloquent language, but pretty um, substantive and direct and, um, you know, uh, intellectually dense kind of stuff. Um, so if that was their idea of entertainment, so be it. Um, that if, if, uh, they didn't, they didn't that, have a ton of other options, you know, like they had books yeah, right. and I suppose like magazines existed in some proto form, but yeah, but I mean, I, I'm fine with intellectualism and entertainment overlapping to that extent. Uh, the same could be said of like William Jennings Bryan, who, was a highly rhetorical sort of very emotional speaker. Um, but nevertheless was using that sort of rhetoric to put forward a substantive platform and an, an idea of um, populist, rural populist politics, which was, you know, pretty substantive, pretty, um, pretty practical um, from a political standpoint. So I'm not really, it seems that what we have now is, if anything, uh, more acute. Um, though it's worth bringing up that, um, you, you're, and I do like to point to the late 19th century, um, because they did have this problem as, you know, any sort of standard narration of the period touches on of extremely polarized and opinionated press where, you know, a, a Democrat would be reading one paper and a Republican would be reading another and they'd get totally different information from it, um, mm -hmm. totally different worldviews, not an unfamiliar problem for contemporary Americans. And, right. you know, um, and, you know, uh, um, Roosevelt, the first Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, absolutely hated the Post, you know, abominated it, thought it was one of the major obstacles to um, what he was trying to accomplish politically. Uh, and it's worth remembering that the sort of post-war golden era of sort of shared media institutions with... Um, NBC and the New York Times at the center of everything came after that. So yeah. the world, the world can turn again. Um, and th there's, there's a lot that can change. And it could be that, um, the divisiveness and the polarization that we have now are going to convince people that we need to come to more, sort of more consensus and start sharing instantly. Uh, sources of information and uh, sources of opinion in common again. And that's something that we really ought to try to work for. Um, so that would be my gloss on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that what what is more acute now is, um, you know, seeing... The news in the late 19th century may have been extremely opinionated, extremely slanted, um, 
certainly there was a lot of emotion around it, but I don't think it was presented as entertainment in quite the same way. Um, that, that's not a claim I've ever heard. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about, because we were just talking about how it's very difficult to say whether some of these new figures are intellectuals or entertainers. Um, and the more important question than how, how we should see them or how they see themselves is how does their audience see them? Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, no doubt, sees himself as an intellectual more than anything else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, damn it. Uh, may need to let that ring. Okay. Uh, but how does some kid who shows up uh, at an auditorium to hear him speak, how is he viewing him? Because that's what's really important. Yeah. Um, well, just back on the point of, you know, the press of 100 years ago, was it news or entertainment? I think it was a mix. You know, there wasn't radio, movies, or TV um, how else did people spend their time? They had they had a lot less leisure time than we have now, um, mm-hmm. but they uh, I think you know they would buy the paper and maybe they would buy two papers or three papers or four papers every day, multiple you know the morning edition and the evening edition. That was you know that was the only way to find out what what was happening was to buy the paper or someone would tell you what they read in the paper. Like there was you know the print news had a monopoly, I think. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like, I think they would offer you, they would offer everything. They would offer the, you know, the news, they would offer, you know, like the, uh, uh, sections for women with, you know, uh, the latest, uh, clothing from Paris. And then they have something for the kids with the funny pages. And yeah, it became kind of like a, I don't know, like maybe equivalent to a, like TV channel that has a sec, you know, has an hour of news and then has entertainment news and then has uh, sitcoms and dramas and, uh, you know, a mismatch of things. So I, and it was all, but it was, I also think a lot of those people had, did not have lofty goals and morals related to the first amendment and democracy. They were like, let's make money. And so mm-hmm. they would just get things wrong or make, you know, make things up. And, uh, and that would, and they didn't care if they, if they sold the paper. Um, on Jordan Peterson, I don't quite know, as viewers of this show may remember, um, I'm not super knowledgeable about the specifics of Jordan Peterson's content, nor do I wish to be. Uh, and everyone, uh, hates everything I say about Jordan Peterson all the time. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, I don't know, like, Tet Revival is what I would compare his talks to. It's not entertainment. Like, there's certainly more entertaining things out there. Like, like, have you seen Avengers 4? Like, the graphics are incredible. Like, if you're choosing between, like, saving your money to buy a video game or saving your money to go see Jordan Peterson, like, I, I don't think there's any contest between the entertainment value of the video game. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, someone delivering, a, like, a sermon on moral betterment. Um, that has a long history in America yeah. as well. Um, and but yeah, you talk so about, from what I can tell, Tent Revival it was would be what I think uh, people are kind of experiencing when they go see him live. Yeah, I'm, but I mean, you also talked about 
he said people enjoy politics the way they enjoy a sporting match. And I think that's sort of what you see. You know, it's supposedly uh, it's sort of intellectual, but the atmosphere in these places where he speaks with the applause breaks and the, the shouting and the sort of people having signs and whatever, it's more like, um, you know, more like a football game than mm-hmm. like an intellectual, uh, than like an intellectual, uh, than like seeing an academic talk, for instance. Yeah, or like a, like a political rally, you know, people bring signs yeah. to that and they chant and clap and stuff and. Well, political rally is mainly there to kind of galvanize people. It also gives them information, um, and it's a chance for somebody to pitch a platform. But you're not supposed to really be refining ideas at a political rally. Um, you are supposed to you are supposed to be refining ideas at a political debate, which is why they generally have the more staid. Um, solemn, quiet kind of atmosphere. Uh But um, in these debates and sort of panels and things that Peterson and people like him go to, they are supposed to be refining ideas ostensibly, but they retain this atmosphere that seems wholly inappropriate. Um, So maybe we should get into, because I worry that these two ideas are contradictory. Um, this sort of um, you can't treat politics as entertainment and still have it be politics. Um, well, the the thing is, of the last five or six presidents, you know, two of them were explicitly employed as entertainers for large portions of the career: Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. So hmm. <laughs> there's there's a collision that's been there for a long time. And that's that's not a great comparison though because Reagan really worked hard to put Hollywood behind him, and he became a governor right. and he he spoke in the very standard presidential fashion, and he made real he made uh, a lot of he did a lot of work to make sure that he could show he could be rigorous and substantive and he had a point of view and. He read a lot of William F. Buckley, and he had a kind of comprehensive conservative worldview, uh, whatever you may think of that worldview. He had it, mm-hmm. um, uh, and in, uh, he, he was at pains to show that side of himself, to show himself as at least somewhat intellectual and um, as... Um, you know, being having real political thoughts. Uh, Trump, obviously, totally different scenario. Right. Um, we could say um, uh, Reagan is tragedy, Trump is farce. Um, you know, or uh, maybe that's too glib, but Trump is a farcical figure. And, um, well, yes, he did have a career in the business world and owns a lot, owns lots of buildings and golf courses and stuff. Um, he became known to the wide swaths of America because uh, he was the host of a game show uh, that was very popular. So, and, you know, he, he is like the most entertainment president we've ever had. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's certainly true. But, I mean, he merges the two realms much more than anyone before him. And, you know, the, the, the basic problem I see with that is entertainment is sort of self-interested. It's, it's If I am out for entertainment, I'm out for... Um, something which is going to be bring me pleasure or amusement or some kind of positive affect. Um, and it really doesn't help anyone else except inadvertently. And if I'm interested in something political, it seems to me I'm usually uh, concerned with something uh, some larger whole other than myself. And even if I have a political goal, which is concerns only my self-interest, like, um, I don't know, somebody's going to abuse eminent domain and knock my, my house down where only I live. Well, then I'm going to be politically involved in a way that's clearly serving my self-interest and ostensibly only my self-interest, maybe even at the expense of all the people who would want to drive on that freeway, which would go through my house. But no sooner do I get involved in, on behalf of my own interests than I'm going to have to invoke things, which would uh, have to do with the good of the whole or the good of other people's interests. Like if somebody can abuse eminent domain to harm me in my house, then they can use it to harm other people. And I have to make a case that's, um, that my particular end is good for the whole. And that's just, uh, it seems to me, a kind of activity, a kind of thinking that's different in kind uh, from thinking about entertainment. And so when you have the two people seemingly unable to differentiate the two, um you have a pretty serious problem. Um, and I think this is, you know, related to the complaints a lot of people have of selectivism and um, kind of the online discourses. Two people are having an argument online and one makes you know, they both feel like they made the other side look stupid to their own side's satisfaction, and everybody goes home feeling satisfied. Um, <laughs> but nothing has really been accomplished. And, you know, frequently I want to say to people, that's not why we're out here. Or if we're out here for that reason, we're not practicing politics. We're, uh, we're out maybe to satisfy ourselves or uh, inflate our own egos or something. But unless we have some plan to get these thoughts to issue forth in actions and changing the social conditions, then we're not really doing politics at all. We're doing something else. Um, so that's where I think it becomes quite pernicious when these ideas about politics and entertainment get Intertwined. I mean, look, look at what, like, what is Salon, basically? <laughs> I mean, it's not news. <laughs> There's not really any news on it. 
Yeah, I would, yeah, it's, uh, built to reinforce the prejudices and tribal sympathies of people on the left, but not the far left, because Salon was, was much more like Hillary Clinton territory than Bernie Sanders territory. Well, that had much more to do with just feminism versus other kinds of identity politics, but, um, but I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a lifestyle magazine, right? It's you're supposed to read it and get a sense of yourself as a sort of refined liberal person. You're in the know. You're you're with the right groups. You're you're against the wrong groups. You're um, on the right side of history, as the kids say sometimes. Um, and um, like this, that passage right at the beginning of Anna Karenina, where. Um, Stepan is reading the liberal newspaper and you know the narrator points out that if any of the policies that the paper stood for were actually enacted it would be ruinous for Stepan who's an aristocrat <laughs> but that's not why he, he reads it he doesn't want the things he reads there to be uh, to actually happen, he just enjoys the feeling of sophistication he gets <laughs> from reading them. And um, there's a, there's a way you can neutralize a lot of momentum or a lot of potential um, by turning politics into entertainment, um, because then people's actions won't be directed towards accomplishing something. They'll be directed towards just sort of providing themselves with the right satisfaction. Mm -hmm. I think that's really quite dangerous. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, where do you see, here's a, here's a question. Um, where do you see, um, this platform we're on right now, blogging heads, meaning of life TV, where do you see it fitting into, um, this landscape um and feel free to be honest <laughs> it may hurt for uh, future appearances on the site but um <laughs> no I'm, I'm joking um yeah tell me what you think and i'll tell you i'll tell you what i think no um no the danger here is quite the opposite that i'll sound like a, a sycophant um, <laughs> it's no I, I was a great great fan before i was on it and i think that um it really does a great job of uh, there are no bells, no whistles, nobody's spinning any plates. Um, there, you know, there are no floodlights, there are no little animations, nobody has a little avatar, um, that speaks for them. It's just people talking very substantively and very patiently about important things. And I, I think it's one of the best things going in, in discourse today. I don't know why it isn't ten times more popular than it is. <laughs> But um, <laughs> maybe uh, the things you like, in what you, the media you consume, is not quite what the mass of the audience. Uh, <laughs> I've been to told this before, yes. But but um, no, I think when you look at logging heads, it's directed. I mean, sometimes it's like me talking about Kant, but usually it's directed towards things that are politically highly relevant and makes at least some nod towards how things should change. I suppose we're doing that today, right? Talking about how attitudes could change and we could be a more 
effective kind of um, uh, citizenry. Um, if we, uh, you know, adopted um, different values or different ways of evaluating um, what information comes to us. So I, I think it's very effective, and I think we need more more stuff like that. There, if I just now, I feel like I've uh, I'm licking boots or something. <laughs> well, I, I thank you for those uh, positive words, and I'm sure we'll be able to find space in our uh, future bookings for the future you. No, I'm, I yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think about this because uh, in the in YouTube comments, uh, as I mentioned before, often people will say to John McWhorter and Glenn Larry. You know, go on Rogan, go, go on, talk to Jordan Peterson. And as, as like, um, blogging heads is like the minor leagues and <laughs> Peterson and Rogan have become the major leagues. Now Peterson and Rogan have more people who pay attention to them. So that, that makes sense in that metaphor. Um, you know, blogging heads originally was, uh, just, uh, Mickey Kaus and Robert Wright speaking to each other. And it was the first time you could watch people who you had read online before, uh, see them having a conversation on video on your computer. Like that was the innovation. And then it kind of, beca- and then it moved to um, featuring people. Yeah. Featuring a wide range of bloggers and voices and people who were coming up in the media world. And, and then it, it was, it, I, and then it, I kind of like in the 2008 or so era, I, I kind of did think about it as like the, the minor leagues of the pundit class. And then people would like graduate up like Chris Hayes. The first time, as far as we know, the first time Chris Hayes appeared on uh, video anywhere was on, was on blogging heads talking to Ryan Salam and now Chris Hayes, uh, you know, is a cable news all-star and has his own show and a million Twitter followers. Um, so that, so that was an interesting role. And then, but then like things have become even more bifurcated where it's like, uh, you know, would Joe Rogan want to trade his platform currently for a show on a cable news channel? Like, I, I have no idea, but maybe he wouldn't at this point because he can like more easily monetize something that he has total control over. Um, and it can, and a cable, you know, cable news, uh, can only go viral via the internet, whereas his current thing can, you know, go viral, uh, instantly. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly where blogging is fits in the current media firmament. I don't think about it, I don't think about it as the, get, uh, getting people ready to appear on Joe Rogan. <laughs> like, yeah. if anything, it should be the, the reverse, but, you know, life isn't fair. Um, well, let me, this is something I look for, because if there's this certain atmosphere that, I mean, I always think of academic talks, which I used to go to fairly often. Um, and if you're in an academic talk, you know, there's this sort of patience. There's, it's not one moment is, you know, pressing to get to the next. There is people walk up, they shuffle their papers, they look down, they think for a moment, and it doesn't feel odd or it doesn't feel um, strained to pause for a moment. Uh, it doesn't make anyone uncomfortable. And most importantly, there's this kind of air uh, where people are superficially at odds with each other, but they're, it's a more deeply collaborative thing. So if somebody is giving a talk, somebody who disagrees with them will pepper them with questions, which will be, you know, objections and things. So they're 
ostensibly on two different sides. One person's pressing one point of view, the other person's pressing an opposing point of view, but they're both pressing these points of view in a uh, mutually supportive way, that they're both part of this same collaborative en- enterprise, uh-huh. which is an inquiry, and they're both following the rules such that they can both um, gain insights, and neither one of them is going to do something which is going to make it difficult for them to be understood or um, make it difficult for the other person to follow the argument or anything like that, because that's not what leads to um, further truths being uncovered and further insight being uncovered. Uh, And I always am looking for media that kind of breathes that air, that same air of um, superficially opposed, but mutually, but deeply collaborative and, so little of our media has it today. Um, you know, certainly not the New York Times opinion page. Um, I think the Atlantic has it. Um, I think Vox occasionally has it, but not nearly as often as I would like. But Blogging Heads is like one of the places that always has that. And um, I think that's really important. And I think that there's far too little that has that kind of correct intellectual atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and and the fact of just how little there is really troubles me. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe a commonality is, uh, you know, academics who academics are not directly motivated by profit. Like mostly they work, you know, obviously they they want to keep their jobs. They want to get tenure, Mm -hmm. but uh, they're not trying to, they want to get big grants and stuff, but they're not trying to like, you know, maximize the profit of the company and uh, blocking heads has been uh, a nonprofit for Mm -hmm. uh, close to a decade, I would say. And that provides, you know, some breathing room or uh, not just like race to the bottom kind of stuff that, uh, such as, you know, 20 different websites posting the same embedded clip of John Oliver with, with a slightly different headline and, uh, just trying to, to get the clicks. But, you know, they're still in order to be, be supported by nonprofit. The money has to come from donors. Donors have, you know, things they want, uh, a website that no one watches at all or very, very small amount of people watch at all. Uh, people who are donating money are not, are going to say what's the point of giving money to this if it's, if no one's watching at all. So, so those kind of incentives are still in place. Um, but, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's persisted. Um, it's, it's stayed close to the original vision, I think. And, uh, yeah, no one has quite picked, tried to like pick up the mantle and do do the same thing. Uh, maybe for obvious reasons, uh, <laughs> because they think they couldn't do it as well. I don't know. Um, do you want to talk about Colbert? or Do you want to wrap up? We've gone over an hour. Um, I think we'll we'll leave that where it is. But shall we briefly talk about maybe some what a better politics would look like? Yes, I don't have a lot of ideas, but <laughs> why don't why don't you offer some? Okay. Well, I, I mean, I was going to say some things like um, I think there was uh, a sense earlier in the country's history and especially sort of clear in the founding generation um, that politics is an obligation. It's it's a duty that you have. 
and uh, and it's especially I mean originally it was an aristocratic kind of notion that people with the largesse the 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 independence and the the wealth to be concerned with um, otium with leisure uh, with dignified leisure had an obligation to see things well-ordered for the good of the rest of the society. They were the ones who were, who were able to do that kind of work. And so they were obliged to do it on behalf of the whole. Um, and that there was, there's a certain role of centrist self-interest in it because they wanted to, by engaging in this kind of activity to, um, to gain reputations as great as great men and great republicans, and they wanted to gain the the respect and the reverence of the community they were part of, but they expected it to be against their own interests in terms of wealth and um, uh, power, earthly power. There's you know maybe the the single greatest example of this is. Um, Washington giving up the army, that wow. he fought the war, he defeated the British, and contrary to everybody's expectations, he delivered the army back to the Republic and said, I'm going to be a private citizen. And it was heard around the world. Um, nobody expected him to do it. It was uh, a shattering thing. Um, according to some somewhat uncertain t- testimony, uh George III, against whom he had waged this rebellion, says, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man in the world. Uh, but that sense of obligation to, to, the, to the greater society, that politics is not something you engage in to benefit yourself, except maybe insofar as it burnishes your reputation and gains you respect, um, that's something that we could really use. That politics is supposed to be for other people and something we gain we engage in out of a sense of private obligation. And um, I, I also wanted to say something about Kant because Kant people have to make everything about Kant. <laughs> um, and I am a Kant person. But, you know, Kant had this sense of acting, concept of acting out of duty. Um, and he made the point that to act morally, to act out of duty, you have to not only do the right thing, but you have to do the right thing for the right reasons. Even if you do the right thing, um, knowing that it's the right thing, and even if you do the right thing, in some sense, because it's the right thing, you haven't necessarily acted morally. Um, For instance, if you just want to, if you just do the moral thing, um, even knowing that it is the moral thing and knowing why it's the moral thing, if you do it just in order to see yourself as good or to see yourself as moral, you haven't really acted morally. You have to act morally. You have to do it, do the moral thing for the correct moral reasons. You have, and the point is, you have to actually act according to principle. If you don't, 
you're maybe trying to avoid a sense of shame or a sense of fear of doing the wrong thing um, or trying to gain some good feeling you might have by seeing yourself as more moral, but you're not really following a moral principle in and of itself. And I was thinking about just how foreign that kind of thinking is to a lot of our political discourse, which is so cynical. It would just refuse to take any of those kinds of distinctions seriously. And uh, again, I find that very troubling. I, I think, tell me if you think I'm going too far here. But I mean, I've seen some things, people have said some things where they don't take the concept of morality seriously. They just think that's kind of, it's, it's a kind of school of suspicion type thing where they think any kind of appeal to morality is a kind of underhanded appeal to power or some kind of ploy, uh, which has some sort of hidden agenda, must have some hidden agenda, agenda behind it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get the same. As so this would be something like being accused of virtue signaling or. Yeah, that's the more kind of right word thing. But the. the OK, I'll say this. Why is Jordan Peterson so popular? One th- one reason he's so popular is because he actually dares to speak in a moral idiom. Mm-hmm. He says these things are right. The other things are wrong. Um, these things are fit to be done. These people are worthy of admiration. These people are not. And he writes books in set that say, or wrote one book that says, here's how you ought to behave. What liberal speaks that way? Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Um, you know, and there's there's, we, there's we, people we leave who, a vacuum. Well, there's people we I don't, there's people who speak that way, but they kind of cut out ninety eight percent of the people as being sinners. So you know, you don't respect intersectionality. You know, you're you're a turf. You are a misogynist. You're a racist. So so there's there's morality in that way of speaking, but it's like. Uh, and some people call these SJWs. Don't know if you've heard that term before. Um, there's a way, to, but it, it's a, it's just a way of saying I'm the good person, you're the bad person. You need to you need to do the work. And but don't ask me what that is because that would be emotional labor. <laughs> but this is very off putting to to the vast majority of people. But those those people are often the most invested in portraying themselves as bad. Like there's no positive vision. They they just they have a lot of things that they're very sure they want to not do. But what do they actually want to do? Um, it, it's very unclear, and they don't have any. Those people generally don't have any positive image of morality, um, and they generally flagellate themselves. You know, if they're the white. white when, if they're white, they probably do. Or, or if you're Ta-Nehisi Coates, you're still a man, so you can flagellate yourself on that, which he does. Uh-huh. Um, if you're Laurie Penny, you can flagellate yourself for being white, uh, or 
cisgendered, heterosexual, and they all do this. So they're all sinners. They count themselves <laughs> among the sinners, and they never name any saints. So there's this terrible vacuum. And it's no wonder that Peterson, you know, takes up so much space by trying to fill it. But And, and like you said, there's a cynicism from the right to the left about virtue signaling. But there's the same... Uh, kind of fire coming from the left to the right with like, so David Brooks is someone I actually admire. And I think he speaks in an honest way about morality and what he thinks we ought to do. I, yeah, I always read, there's um, three people I always read in the New York Times op-ed page, Brooks, Rostafit, and Friedman. These people are pretty loathed (laughs) on the part of Twitter where I hang out. But I, uh, I, the people, they're more liberal left writers aren't interesting to me because they're just saying things I already believe. I, I read Michelle Goldberg as well. Um, uh, but I haven't read, uh, Gail Collins or Marine Dowd, uh, in, um, or Christoph or Frank Bruni, good God, in a very long time. But, uh, yeah, but a lot of people really, really hate Brooks. Um, and he's, you know, he deserves some criticism, but I think, I think he mm-hmm. uh, is definitely a public intellectual worth paying attention to. Yes. And he's hated because he has these moral values. I mean, people try to say he's a hypocrite or whatever, who cares? But uh, the, the for, thing that... For those really, who don't pay attention, the reason they say that is because he divorced his first wife and married his research assistant, who was like 25 years uh, his junior. Right. Which... I don't understand caring about that, but but what what really earns him all this scorn is that he stands up for values, um, just any values at all, um, and the, there's very little. Uh, there are people like Michael Sandel and Martha Nussbaum who are actually talking about sort of the good life and positive values that we should have from a liberal perspective. But the people who talk that way are, like Michael Sandel and Mar- Martha Nussbaum, moral philosophers, and nobody listens to them, except for, <laughs> except for me. Um, yeah, so I just see very little of that kind of leadership on the left, and that, again, troubles me. There's no reason we can't have values. Um, and it'll... Having values means judging people who don't share those values, and we just have to be comfortable with that because it's a lot better than having no values. Right. I mean, this is like a whole other conversation that we could have perhaps. Um, You know, the values of the left would – I think there are are values, so – you know the mainstream left, like uh, people like Barack Obama, have uh, values I would say related to fairness and justice, and um, you know providing a minimum standard of living to people and treat, treat people with dignity and stuff like that. The more like, but what I, are they going to do with that more? I, well, you know, you, there were things like uh, the the Affordable Care Act, which didn't work exactly as promised, and now Obama recently said he'd be open to Medicare for all. Um, and on uh, the economic left, uh, universal Medicare, Medicare for all is really the, uh, main goal that they're, uh, fighting for right now. Um, yeah, so, but you know. Being healthy, being healthy is not a value. I mean, wh- what are you going to do with that health? What kind of life should we live? 
Okay, I, I see what you're saying. So the the I guess the left liberal response would be like it's your freedom to choose what kind of life you're living as long as you're not like harming you know someone else or, or interfering with other people's pursuit of uh, their vision of uh, the good life. And that's not a great answer. <laughs> and 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 there's something to be well. You're right this would become a whole other conversation, but I think there are some values that we can share. Um, and even that are part of the kind of experiments and living that Mill talked about. If we're going to have a society that engages in experiments and living and lots of individual choice, there's a certain kind of culture which has to grow up underneath that, which involves things like, um, a passion for truth and for beauty and, um, a sense of collaboration between people like Mill and his debate society and his autobiography where he he was very happy to debate with conservatives about what was good and uh, worthwhile pursuing in life. Um, so if that were the case, then people would not be just throwing scorn at Ross Duthat and David Brooks. They would be engaging in collaborative debate with them. Of course, that's not what we see. Yeah, I, I agree that the, um, especially on Twitter where, uh, you know, emotional tribal reactions get the most, uh, positive feedback for people who send them out into the world. Um, you know, just saying, uh, this sucks. Fuck you. I, I have this running joke where I, I say someone's name and then I say like eight ellipses and then I say, sis, you're canceled. Uh, because the, the, you know, that's like a phrase that people use is saying like, you know, you're canceled. Like Gian Gomeshi, you're canceled. Like we don't really need to hear anything more from Gian Gomeshi for a long time, a long time, maybe forever. But like, uh, there's other people who, uh, commit, uh, smaller infractions who maybe we shouldn't say like, you're canceled, go away forever, uh, go die in a hole. Uh, that's, <laughs> that seems, that's, uh, emotionally fulfilling, but not like, uh, the proper way to go about things. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to fix the hole we're in. I think a lot of the reform has to happen on the right. Uh, the right is the, where, I mean, Donald Trump is, doesn't have a true, doesn't actually have any political philosophy, but he cultivated, uh, people who describe themselves as conservatives around the right and they supported him and put him in the White House. Um, that's the big moral failing of our, of this era, like, uh, I was gonna say of our lifetimes, and I thought of the Iraq War. Certainly more people died in the Iraq War, but in terms of, like, uh, true, <laughs> a true moral mistake, uh, letting Donald Trump ascend to the presidency, uh, takes, <laughs> takes the cake, takes the cake, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know, I, I don't know how the right is going to do that because they found success in this, uh, awful model that Trump pioneered of, uh, veiled racism and um, misogyny and uh, xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, and I, you know, I think it's changed quickly in this country. Uh, four years ago, no one thought Donald Trump would be president. Uh, someone could emerge um, on the left who has some kind of new vision that attracts people. I don't think it'll be Bernie Sanders, but maybe it'll be someone more on his side of things than than Hillary Clinton was. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> I don't know what's I don't quite know uh, how or when uh, well, change aside from that is going to happen. 
I hope when it does, there's a moral component to it. And I'll just end by plugging Michael Sandel's book, uh, Public Philosophy. It's something everyone should seek out um, because it makes a lot of these points. And uh, it made a lot of these points very early. Uh, Michael Sandel was making kinds of these kinds of comments going back to the, the Clinton era. So um, I think it's very relevant criticism. I think it's a great shame that since the death of the New Republic, he hasn't really had much of a platform. Um, he should certainly get one back. Um, yeah, he, so did, the, he, did he co-write a book with Thomas Friedman, or am I thinking of someone else? I think you're thinking of someone else. Okay. I, I, um, he, he wrote Justice? Yes, that okay. was his, his popular work. Yeah, that was, that was, that's the only thing I've read by him, um, which was interesting. Um, and I think he has, I think his course on that is free online, perhaps. Um, yeah. okay, so why don't we, you know, we've gone almost 90 minutes, uh, why don't we end it there? Uh, so David, uh, thank you for coming on to have this, uh, discussion with me. Um, uh, viewers and listeners, uh, thank you for sticking with it to the end. Uh, commenters, especially YouTube commenters, please let us know how stupid we are, and how wrong we are, <laughs> and tell us that Joe Rogan would never have us <laughs> on his show, no matter what. Hey, I'll give them that. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll see you again next time. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.